nobody could Like where are the bone dogs in? Are they in harmony? everybody welcome um i guess you didn't get to hear the entire theme song today but you know what um fuck off you know what i mean like how many times do you have to hear the same song before it's like all right we got it i have to wonder there's some podcasts that i like and i just skip the theme song because i don't even dislike the theme song i just feel like eh you know eh 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 um, we are going to do part two of our basically Model Land Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land, the audiobook. Um, because that's what we're doing. We're going to do we're going to do some different stuff on Helpful Snowman here and there. And that's what we're doing now. So I guess if you don't like that, I don't know. Wait till the next thing, which will happen when this thing is either done or I get really tired of it. Or if I get, like, overwhelming feedback that everyone's like, nah, this is some bullshit. But, um, I just, I just realized on the back. So, this week I put out, um, the first edition of what I'm calling Pizza Cult Books, which is like a book review, uh, video series. And I made fun of a book for having, like, 16-point font on the back, and this probably, Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land probably has, like, 20-point font. Maybe even 24. Uh, but, you know, what do you want? What do, what do you expect of uh, a review of a book that's a book itself? So where we left you last time, we were going to talk about um, Chris, who uh, Chris Cream Krabat, who is the main character, Tookie, uh, which is Tyra Standin. Tyra Standin is Tookie. Tookie's father is Chris. AKA Chris Cream Crobat. Um, and so we're going to start with the story of how he lost his eye, uh, which is chapter five. Um, yes, his name is Chris Cream Crobat, Tookie's father, or at least that's how he was known in his circus glory days. Yes, we finally get the story of Chris's eye gouging. Finally, the part I've been waiting for, my favorite section from my first read through of this book. Here's how it goes down. Chris was a famous tightrope walker. You know all those famous, rich tightrope walkers who are deeply respected by society? The sort of thing people get really excited about in the age of television? Those people you can name one of? Only real-life examples count. No fair using the Flying Graysons. He was one of those. The De La Cremes were at the circus. Tookie and her mother in the crowd. Chris, the dad, doing some kind of high-wire act? It's hard to say what exactly he was doing because Tyra's descriptions leave something to be desired, but Chris was probably doing some sort of screwing around on a thin wire of some kind. Listen, the important thing is that Chris is seven stories up and doing something dangerous. Meanwhile, down below, the entire circus ring is lined with swords pointed straight up. I googled quite a bit to find out whether a seven-story fall is fatal on its own without swords, but of course the internet is no help. You can fall from a chair and die, or you could fall out of a goddamn airplane and survive somehow. This is the kind of wisdom the internet provides. This is the sort of thing where I feel like science has failed me. Shouldn't there be a height after which we can say a person is most certainly doomed? 
and a height where most times a person will survive. There was one discussion board where someone happened to be writing a novel and wanted something, someone to fall and die, which I bring up because another poster said, just have the person fall, get up for a second, then blood comes out of his ear and he falls over dead. I'd believe it. I just hope that novel gets written and turned into a Nicolas Cage movie. I hope that I hope that more than I hope for the health of my firstborn child. I want to see that shit. Okay, back to Model Land. While Chris is wowing the crowd from on high, Creamy, Tookie's mom, Creamy de la Creme, decides to apply some makeup to her face. When she's got her mirror out, she accidentally reflects a stray beam of light into Chris's eye. As would be the case with any trained circus performer, a brief flash of light causes Chris to fall immediately. The guy can walk on a high wire, but a beam of light? What is he, God or something? No man can overcome the sheer force of something that's fairly bright or brighter. I know that whenever the sun reflects off something when I'm in the car, I just spin the wheel like crazy and hope for the best. Because what other options are there? I'm a mere mortal man. Chris falls seven stories in front of a horrified crowd. Now, a lesser performer would have died on impact, but Chris ain't no lesser performer. He lands, quote, on his upper back and then somehow tumbles to his feet totally fine. It's an interesting take on the art of tumbling. I thought generally landing on your back wouldn't be preferred. But then again, I'm only the world's eighth best circus performer, so you should just ignore what I say. I would probably be killed by Chris's fall. If not instantly, then shortly after I stood up, blood would gush from my ear and I'd pass out. I keep including this in hopes it will become part of the public consciousness and get into a big movie. Chris is fine. Sigh of relief. And ever the showman, he takes a bow, and then another, and during one of his many bows, Chris bows his eyes straight into one of the swords that line the circus ring. Let me just reiterate what happened here. A man fell seven stories and survived due to sheer athleticism, and while he was taking kudos for that inhuman act of incredibleness, he then leaned his own eye into a stationary sword. Meanwhile, Creamy knows that she signed a light in Chris's eye, and she tells Tookie to keep her mouth shut about it. So somehow Creamy knows that her weird act of vanity caused her husband to lose his eye. I mean, sort of. I think I know what Tyra's trying to do here. That's a dangerous claim, but I'm going to give it a shot. I think Tyra's showing us how selfish and shitty Creamy is, and kind of having Tookie keeping this secret with her mom. But it's a stupid secret, and it's the clumsiest way ever to do it. I mean, come on, even if it... If we were prepared to believe that a light in the eyes was the downfall of old Chris, it wasn't until he was on the ground that he bowed and lost his own stupid eye. And also, if you're a circus performer and a light in the eyes makes you fall, is that really someone else's fault or are you kind of shitty at your job? Think about it. What would happen if Tookie told her dad? Tookie, dad, it was mom's mirror that shined the light in your eyes and made you fall. Chris, what? When I lost my eye? Why I oughta... Oh wait, the fall was fine. I just bent over and put my eye on a sword. <laughs> Boy, what a maroon, huh? It's like a very retarded O. Henry story or something. O. Retarded. I guess apologies for using that word. I know that's not a, a acceptable word anymore. What are you going to do? Anyway, Chris loses an eye, and that means he can't walk a tightrope anymore, and it means Tookie's mom isn't attracted to her husband anymore, and Chris turns into a worthless drunk in that way you see worthless drunks portrayed, which is them having a bottle in hand sometimes, and sometimes drinking from it. This is easily one of my favorite sequences in the book. It's just, there are just so many things happening. Oftentimes you'll find a book where not much happens. 
In this chapter, a bunch of shit happens. Granted, it's all backstory that amounts to, this is why Tookie's dad is worthless, but there's about five times as much story here as there needs to be. This has to be the most overwritten, overexplained book in the history of anything ever. This is Model Land, people. Answering the questions nobody asked. Chapter 6 When we last left Tookie de la Creme, she was not in Model Land and hated her family and a bunch of other bullshit, which brings us to Chapter 6. In Chapter 6, we meet the Seven. And already, goddammit, uh, this is typed as the digit seven, capital S, and then the rest of the word seven. So seven, seven. How do you pronounce seven? How does a person say this? Seven, seven? Sa seven? Go fuck yourself? This is one of the many reasons I wanted a Model Land audiobook, and it also makes me wonder if it's part of the reason said audiobook does not exist in any form. People would ask questions like, Tyra, how would you like someone to pronounce this unpronounceable thing? Or maybe they had a narrator set to read it and she said, I know how to pronounce very little of this book, but here's something I know how to say. Fuck this shit. I shouldn't be so hard on Tyra. We all remember the classic film, The 7-7 Seven Seven Samurai. And who could forget the TWE-12-LVE Angry Men? And who could forget the taking of Pelham 1-1-2-2-3... 3-3, or lucky number 11. Actually, that last one is almost as stupid. It's got a character named Slevin and an up upside-down 7 in the title. Did Tyra miss out on a writing credit here? Rather than bashing further on Tyra's naming convention, let's talk about what the 7 are and bash on that. They're X-Men? Models who are X-Men? The basic thing, every year girls get selected to model land, and these super specialist girls become intoxabellas, which are synonymous with the seven, I think. There are seven intoxabellas? Let's go with that for now. I'm sorry this isn't something that I researched better, but there are no other sources that describe this book in detail, and the book itself isn't exactly helpful. I'm relying on my own notes, and I get so angry at points that I can't see the paper, just a deep maroon color, and some of the finer details escape me. So the seven are the bestest models selected last year on the Day of Discovery, TDOD, and now they all wear these golden belts that unleash their inherent latent powers. In this world, everyone has powers, but only wearing a magic golden belt from Model Land unleashes them, I think. That seems to be the implication. Guys, I don't fucking know. Just go with me here, let's just introduce the Intoxabellas and their powers. E Evangelinda with the power of chameleon. That's supposed to be an accent on that last letter, but I'm not going to dignify this ridiculousness with that many extra pixels. Chameleon lets Evangelinda change every aspect of her appearance. Like, you know, the chameleon. That lizard everyone was obsessed with in fourth grade because it could change colors. This is really cool because she can be tall or less tall. She could have a big butt or a bigger butt. Other stuff too, I'm sure. What I don't know is if she could do something like have a sideways butt crack, or grow a dick or something. I'm not sure if this power is actually awesome, or if it's mostly just looking like other... Like other people. Then we've got Simone with the power of multiplicity. She has a screen in her stomach that shows the Michael Keaton movie multiplicity on constant loop. Okay, fine, that's a lie. The truth is she can clone herself like the multiple man. They don't get into the questions that naturally come along with your multiple men, such as whether the multiple strength is divided among the clones, whether they have a hive mind or individual mind, all that stuff. 
Simone just multiplies and then unmultiplies and we all move on. Bev Joe. We'll get to her powers in a second, but I want everyone to appreciate the name Bev Joe because what the fuck. Bev Joe with the power of 30 never. She'll age to 29, then revert to looking 17. Then she'll age to 29, then back to 17, and on and on until she dies. Bev Joe kind of lost the cool powers lottery, and also the names lottery. Seriously, Bev Joe sounds like a third lead on Reba McIntyre's sitcom. Also, what happens when you're a 70 chronologically and you appear 17? That's going to be rough. Sex-wise, decrepitness-wise, all the wises, this power is horrible. Limora with the power of excite to buy, which makes people around her want to buy shit. Not anything in particular, it seems, just stuff they were already thinking about buying. Tookie thinks about a hair product, her mom about a wrinkle cream, so I guess if you needed, like, I don't know, a mop head, you'd go, holy shit, better buy that mop head right now. What raw power. Already, just a few girls in. Already, I fear there is too much power to go unchecked. Hopefully they get a moon base constructed soon and write up some sort of oath, possibly rings they can put in a circle or something. Moving on, Sindisi with the power of seduction, which isn't explained other than the men who see her are being odd and one of them saying, I'm ready to sin with Sindisi right here, right now, which I have to assume means he's telling us that he has an erection. Maybe he means morally ready, emotionally, but no, let's assume boner. It's kind of a policy of mine to assume boner unless otherwise informed. By that same token, the power of seduction isn't explained either, so let's just assume it's really big jugs. Are big jugs a superpower? That's a debate that I can't answer. If Lincoln and Douglas couldn't come to an agreement in their great Lincoln-Douglas big jugs debates, then what chance do I have? Next we have Katucha, whose power is to know which fashions will be popular a short time in the future. That's right, she's wearing what you'll be wearing next year. I put this power in the category of powers that are sort of useful, but fuck man, pretty boring. You could get a good gig at a fashion place? A place where they do clothes? A designer. You could work with a designer. See, I know all about fashion. Lastly, Exodus. Teleporter. Which seems to be amazing to the people of this book because I guess they don't have comics with characters like Nightcrawler, Supergirl, Misfit, Jenny Quantum, Darkseid, Gog, Blink, Cloak, Doorman, Spiral, Spot, Gatecrasher, You Go Girl, Lockjaw, Venus de Milo, and wait a second, Exodus? Created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Casada, Exodus was a teleporting 12th century mutant who was eventually freed by Magneto. First appearance, X-Factor number 92, Smile and Stand. So not only is this a boring power, but motherfucker, the name has already been used with that power. That is some lazy shit. Now, unfortunately, a triple seven was not produced this year, which is a model who possesses all seven of these powers, which is extra confusing. I kind of thought these powers were new and unexpected, different every year. The reactions of people were not like, oh, I guess that's the teleport chick, so that must be Little Miss Seduction over there. They were ooing and aahing all over the place, boners a-swinging like they'd never seen any of this shit before. Do the Intoxabellas always have the same powers? Does the Triple Seven always have all of those powers, or does she have whichever seven powers the other girls have? Or, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck any of this is talking about. Why superpowers are a part of this book, I do not know. 
I do not know why this is a needed addition to the narrative here, or whether this goes anywhere, because like I said, we're only about halfway to actually entering model land. If Tookie ever gets powers, holy fuck, it's not even going to happen until the last 10% of the book, at which point, what, two of the powers will be totally worthless to readers? She'll age at the same rate regardless, and we won't really know how good her fashion future casting is until the following year. Those two do nothing for the story. But hey, just be thankful your name isn't Bev Joe. Chapter 7 When we left you last time, still, almost nothing had happened. Still. Tookie is Tyra in disguise, her parents are jerks, and Miracle is her sister, who is destined to be selected to go to Model Land, the magic place on the mountain where people are turned into models and also superheroes, somehow, for some reason. In Chapter 8, we get a heated, overheard discussion between Tookie's parents regarding her parentage. Dun-dun-dun! Tookie's father claims that Tookie isn't his daughter. The basis for his claim seems to be that he did not actually see baby Tookie exit her mother's vagina during the birth. He was off earning the big bucks as a circus performer, supporting the family. His secondary B-level evidence is basically that Tookie sucks. I've never heard of this before, someone disclaiming his child as being from his seed because, well, she sucks. This kid sucks. The only explanation for such a thing is that she isn't mine. I wish I had one ounce that much of that self-confidence. To drive the point home, Chris is holding Tookie's toothbrush, and he's sort of threatening his wife, saying he's headed to the DNA lab just as soon as T-Dod, the day of discovery, when models are selected for Model Land, is over. If Tookie is not his offspring, he wants to sell her off to work in a factory, which is a thing that happens in this book but hasn't happened to Tookie yet for basically no reason. They all hate her, they have no use for her, and yet they don't just sell her off to make a few bucks. Why not? This whole thing is a Cinderella story, and at least with Cinderella, even if it never made sense that she didn't just say fuck it and run away or at least be drunk all the time, at least Cinderella was doing all the housework. You could totally see why they'd keep her around because it's like, I hate that Cinderella for being so hot, but goddamn, what I hate even more is doing housework. Would I be annoyed if Chris Hemsworth was my stepbrother and did shirtless housework all around my house? Sure. Would I be so annoyed as to dick him out, or as to be a dick to him and kick him out? I might politely ask if he could wear a shirt sometimes, but if I came home every day and the place was spotless, what do I care? So all my neighbors want to bang the guy who cleans my house before they want to bang me. Duh, no shit. As long as cleaning all of the male and female come off the linens inside of the house as part of his duties, he can do whatever he wants as far as I'm concerned. I'm just not Cinderella, or it's not just Cinderella. All Disney movies have the craziest relationship with attractiveness. Like Maleficent. She has to be the number one hottest woman in the world, right? When the mirror tells her she's the second hottest person on earth, she flips. My partner told me I was more attractive than a billion people, which made me happy until I realized there's like six or seven billion people in the world, which means I'm still in the bottom 20%. But still, being hotter than a billion, that's not too bad. That's a big-ass number. I can live with that. Anyway, Model N makes no sense because you're just thinking, why wouldn't the parents ship Tookie off or why wouldn't she just run away? I'm glad you asked. Just when I couldn't take it anymore, Tookie writes some kind of cryptic symbol on the front door, which makes no sense as a reader, but let's just go with it, and this symbol somehow signals her insane cutter friend that they should run away together first thing in the morning. I guess the door graffiti is some like some sort of Passover thing, except not at all, and instead of making a whole 
door or marking a whole door, she could just leave a post-it or something. I could see why you wouldn't want to go the post-it route on Passover. I'd hate for a slight breeze or a light rain to damage the post-it, therefore causing the death of my firstborn. That's worth tracking down some goat's blood and ruining a door for. It just makes me wonder how none of the Egyptians picked up on everyone in town painting goat's blood on the outside of their homes. But hey, from what I've seen of pyramids, the Egyptians made some pretty strange life choices, so who are we to wonder? I guess we're to assume that Tookie's nutto friend is checking Tookie's front door every day on the chance that she'll be ready to run away sometime in the next 12 hours. If I was Tookie's friend, her crazy friend who lives in a tree and cuts herself with found objects that aren't even sharp, I'd probably say, listen, Tooks, I'm not exactly sharp in the brain, so if you could just come and get me when you're ready to make a run for it, that would probably work better. I hear voices. Daily checkups on your property are not going to be my strong suit. Of course, the runaway plan doesn't work. What foils it all? What could possibly stop this juggernaut of a genius plan which is considered of wake up or which consisted of wake up a 20 minutes early and walk out the front door? Tookie's parents are awake and they don't want her to leave. Curses. It's like goddamn Ocean's 11 movie, everything was in place just so and one little oversight ruined it all. Who could have predicted that Tookie's parents would be up slightly earlier than normal? How could we have expected Tookie to prepare for such a wild twist of fate? Tookie can't just leave when her parents are awake, which makes me even more confused. Her parents wish she would fuck off. She wants to fuck off. All she has to do is say, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Peace. And walk out the door. Her parents high five. Miracle goes to model land. And that's pretty much it. It doesn't happen. Sorry, this isn't a gag book that ends with here with a ha ha. Wasn't that a ride? Okay, seriously, go read Raymond Chandler or something. Tookie has to go along with her parents and assist Miracle at T-Dodd somehow, and as the Delacremes drive away, they see Tookie's friend in the driveway howling. Of course, Tookie's parents comment on this urchin weirdo being in their driveway because they have to get in a couple jabs, just in case we as readers weren't totally sold on the idea that these people are monstrous asshole dick faces already. Although when you take a step away from the story, these parents have seen someone who is an acknowledged escapee from multiple insane asylums, who has more voices in her head than she knows what to do with, howling, animal-like, in their driveway. So maybe they aren't totally wrong to comment. Just maybe. And that's chapter 8. The good news, chapter 9 begins with us headed to the Day of Discovery. So maybe we'll be on our way to Mataland soon, although we're still about 70 pages from entering the gates, goddammit. I wanted to add a little meat to this chapter, to this review, because it's so light, and what I wanted to talk about is negativity in reviews. Famously in 2013, BuzzFeed hired a new books editor who declared the site would no longer traffic in negative reviews. From an interview. Why waste breath talking smack about something? You see it in so many old media-type places, the scathing takedown rip, Fitzgerald said people in the online books community understand that about books, that it is something that people have worked incredibly hard on, and they respect that. The overwhelming online books community is a positive place. There is a lot of debate about this. Should people review books negatively, or should they go by that old thing about having nothing good to say and shutting their weeping shitholes? Something like that. I can't remember how my grandma put it exactly. And I do think there are a lot of times when negative books reviews are kind of bullshit. I do feel like there are many, many times when a negative review is kind of written by someone who expected to dislike the book, read it looking for flaws, and then feels the need to tear down something that's pretty serviceable. 
This is probably most common in the literary fiction world, to be honest. But let's talk about what negative reviews are at the core, because I think there are two types, really. One type is the type that may result in a low rating, but acknowledges that the book isn't inherently bad. I gave A Tree Grows in Brooklyn a negative review, and I was pretty clear about what I disliked about it, and I was also clear about the, quote, not for me, but maybe great for someone else, end quote, factors. Which is important in this type of review. It's negative, but defensible. People are allowed to have opinions on things. The second type is trashing a book up and down, saying that not only is it not for you, but it's a badly written book and a bad experience. This is harder to defend, but what I'm going but it's what I'm doing to model land, so I have to mount some kind of defense here. If this book were written by a teenager, even a very young and inexperienced writer, I would feel differently. It's the difference between trashing a low-budget homemade movie created by a few teenagers and talking shit about Transformers Rise of the Revenging Robosaurs. Critiquing a home movie would be pretty unfair, especially to go really negative on it. But critiquing Transformers is fine, and I think it's fine because a big studio with a big cast and a big budget had every opportunity to succeed, and they failed miserably. They didn't put out something bad because they tried really hard and didn't succeed. They didn't make use of what was available to them, and we see the results on the screen. To me, it's something about looking at how close something was to its maximum potential. If the home movie was about as good as you can expect for what it was on paper, then it's assholery to go negative. If Transformers was a 6 out of 10, it wouldn't warrant shit-talking. But all it needed to be was a 6, and all it really needed was giant robots fighting, and we didn't even meet those low standards. Let's talk about the potential of Model Land. It was put out by a big publisher. It had a big marketing push, including a lot of talk on Top Model and in other outlets. Within about 250 miles of where I sit, there are 840 libraries that have model land, and I couldn't tell you for sure how many copies they have, and I don't live in a dense part of the country. And while I can't be sure what Tyra made for the book, she signed a three-book deal with Delacorte, a sub-pub of Random House. She got people to handle contracts, and she's no stranger to this shit, so I'm sure she came out A-OK -okay financially. I'm not trashing this book because I'm jealous or think that what Tyra got should have gone to someone else. I understand the publishing world has to publish garbage sometimes because, hey, garbage sells. Why do you think Tori Spelling has four memoirs in five years? Because that shit makes money. I don't blame the publishing world for this. Although I do feel like there must be a whole lot of people working in that world who have to wonder how far they've strayed from their original reasons for getting into publishing. The reason I'm cool negging on this book is because, like a big-budget movie, there was potential for it to be decent. At least, it could have been blandly, inoffensively bad. But that modicum of potential was not realized. This book is under-edited on a very basic story level. Nobody went back through and checked the con continuity of this. Nobody went back through and explained to Tyra how to write a book that wasn't flat, that emphasized certain important aspects and let the unimportant parts wither away so that a reader isn't trying to hold so much in the mind the entire time. The money was there to hire editors who could have brought out the good in this story, which I dare say is there. I think there's a good book, or the core of a good book, hidden in all the whirlwind of shit that is model land. There's a value to the message Tyra is trying to send to young women. 
The messages about redefining beauty, about how the life of a beautiful person is not a life without struggle, about the ways in which Tyra's own experience was bizarre and unusual. That's all in here, but it's the single pickle slice on the shit burger. Here's the other reason why I think negative reviews are important. It's 20 fucking 16. Any idiot can type out a book and throw it on the Kindle store. I've done it, which means anyone can. Technological advances mean that I have a worldwide distribution method available to me, same as a huge author. And make no mistake, many, many people have taken advantage of this system, and many, many people write lots and lots of garbage. Just search my name on the Kindle store for confirmation of this fact. I've recently come to like the tearing... to feel like the tearing down of artistic barriers isn't the best thing in the world. Photography was an early example. Now, anyone on the planet can take a picture, scroll through filtering options, and post pics online in seconds. While I don't feel like this has devalued or ruined photography, it does mean that you have a lot more nonsense to sort through before you can find what you're looking for if you are a fan of photography. Movies. CG has gotten so inexpensive that it's easier to put out a hundred garbage movies than it is to put out a dozen decent movies. Look at something like Bandcamp. It's a great spot for artists to post music, but it's not an awesome way to find new music or artists. There's just too much stuff, and too much of it is subpar. Imagine if there was no filtering process for Saturday Night Live. You tuned in every Saturday night to a crowdsourced collection of sketches. How many episodes of that would be tolerable? Books. Although the publishing world isn't very isn't perfect, and there are dozens of stories about things that were rejected and later went on to become classics, we still need some kind of filter. We do. I don't want someone telling me what to read and what not to read, but I'm pretty cool with someone outlining the reasons that a book is a poor version of its own vision. Although I might be missing out on some hilarious SNL sketches because they don't fit the SNL aesthetic, I also know that I'm being spared a whole lot of garbage. If every movie had the ability to look like Avengers, and if every movie had the same distribution, I'd waste a lot of time and money watching things I didn't like. The filter that was once in place by publishing houses is fading fast. They gotta make a buck, and other outlets are figuring that out. Other outlets are figuring out that, hey, if we charge people a certain amount to put up files, if we charge bands to put up files or take a cut of every sale, we can make money even if they barely sell a song. In those cases, there's no incentive to filter whatsoever. The more, the merrier. Let's make this all very simple. When someone says that an artist spent a lot of time on something and therefore it can't be criticized, I take issue. Writing is tough, and you have to be tough. Commercially viable art isn't just about dumping the contents of your head into or onto a medium. It's about pouring yourself onto something in such a way that others can understand your words, understand the emotion of what you're painting, and so that the message of your work is reachable. This is why you'd be an asshole to walk into a garage where someone was painting and start critiquing their work. And it's why if someone wanted to sell those same paintings in your gallery, you have every right to criticize them. Yes, I'm taking a stance that adults, who are operating within their own faculties, open their art up to criticism when they put a price tag on it and sell it to you. I do think that putting your money, time, or effort into experiencing someone else's piece of art affords you the opportunity to then discuss how you felt about your expenditure. 
With Model Land, Tyra put a book into an enormous number of bookstores and libraries. She signed a three-book deal, having not written all the material yet, which means she knew this was a commercial endeavor, not just an artistic expression of inner feelings. If I can be so bold as to think of my mind as a gallery, or to think of my mind as an indie movie house, when Tyra put out this book, she was asking that people hang her work in their mental galleries. And that means people are allowed to explain why they would not do so, or why they might hang it for a time and then be allowed to explain why they took it down, why they regretted the decision to give her work that space. I can see why BuzzFeed made the choice they made. They're mostly about fun, no? And what's not fun is to watch a huge media empire beat up on a single person. For BuzzFeed to rag on Jonathan Franzen, it's stupid. It's silly, and it's pretty easy to ignore their opinion based on the fact that they're a website that lets you take a quiz that determines what kind of cupcake you are. There are so many great books out there, I could see the appeal of only steering people to good books rather than steering them away from the bad ones. I'm a dude. Just this one dude. I don't represent a media empire. I don't make a decision that sets the tone for shit. I'm reading Model Land. I think it sucks hard, and I think its level of suck is kind of astonishing considering the available resources and options that could have improved it. As a final note, I say offensive shit on my website, podcast, and all over the place. Not horribly offensive, but things that I'm sure people get pissed off about. The thing is, it's not my goal to offend people, but I've also decided it's not a goal, not an important aspect of what I do, to make sure that no one is offended. I don't consider part of my work to police what I do and make sure that no one would be offended. In other words, if someone is offended, I don't wear it as a badge of honor and say, I'm doing my job. But something telling me, someone telling me they found something offensive doesn't necessarily make me think I've done something wrong. Which is why I'm pretty comfortable in my position. This book is really terrible. Chapters 8 and 9 we finally made it to the day of discovery, or TDOD, if you prefer the obnoxious shortening. It's not totally clear how the day of discovery works, but that's to be expected in this book, so buckle up. From what I can tell, the way this works is that any aspiring models who want to participate and possibly disco be discovered to go to model land, dress up, and for 15 minutes or so walk around. The hope is that a scout will see them, pick them from the crowd, and then whisk them off to model land. We join our heroes in the town square, ready to rock. Well, Miracle is. Tookie isn't participating. I guess she'll just stand still and, I don't know, hold Miracle's coat? The mayor, Mayor Rump, as he's properly named, instigates things by saying the classic pump-up phrase, begin, and the girls start walking around. What happens is about 15 minutes of girls all walking around in heels and dresses, and it would seem a lot of these girls learn their catwalk techniques at the Mo Howard School of Perambulation. We have a girl trip and fall, and not only does she fall to the ground, on the way down she hits her head on an old man's mobility scooter. We have no less than three girls fall down the same open manhole, <laughs> which by the way is a big public works fuck up. You can't just have an open manhole in the town square, let alone on a day when a goddamn parade is coming through. The girls walk back and forth in model format, I guess. And then they collide and they fight and roll around on the ground and tussle. They break shoes, they tear dresses, and they have people shouting, Go! You can do it! and shit like that, even though all they're doing is walking around. Tookie tries to get above the crowd by standing on a solid gold car with spinners, and once atop the car, she sees the model land scouts begin to appear. A light post magically transforms into a scout who picks a girl. 
A hole opens in the ground and another girl is chosen. And then get this, you are not going to fucking believe it. A scout comes out of the roof of the car and selects Miracle, Tookie's sister. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Probably you didn't see it coming because it's not what happens, and instead of picking Miracle, the scout reaches out to Tookie. Guys, believe it or not, it looks like Tookie's going to Model Land. She didn't believe in herself, but fuck it, she's on her way. That's two entire chapters of this book, the T-Dot and Selection. What I just summed up in like ten words, who's counting? Two fucking chapters. Here's the big problem with this whole fucking thing right here. We hear about T-Dot over and over. Oh, this is when the models are chosen. This is when girls have to parade around. Miracles in walking lessons for years, and they get perfect dress, and this is the big day. And the scout just picks Tookie, who isn't dressed, who isn't walking around. I get that we're probably building to a point about inner beauty, but if Tookie gets picked for doing nothing, what the hell? Why would anyone do any of this model shit anymore? If you can just stand around and watch, what the hell is everyone parading for? This last weekend, I went and saw Mad Max Fury Road which I'm really happy about because it was fucking awesome, but also because it is really helpful in explaining what I like about bonkers things and why Model Land is bonkers and still terrible. I'm not going to say a whole lot about Fury Road because you need to see that shit, and the less you know ahead of time, the better. If you like movies, films, if you've ever enjoyed a movie, then you're the ideal audience for Fury Road. Here's what I want to say about it. It's a good movie in all the ways movies need to be good, and it's also fucking bonkers. Like, really crazy. And it's great. Crazy shit happens, the characters are insane and gross, and it's close to a non-stop car chase that a movie can be and still be watchable. And I'm not a huge car chase guy. I fell asleep during Ronin. But Fury Road adds things to the car chase lexicon that we're going to be seeing forever. It's way more than squealing tires and shit. This is the movie I think Fast and Furious aspired to be and never reached because it's just too damn stupid, and there's too much silly plot that gets in the way of the fastness and furiousness. Fury Road is crazy, it's fast, it's fun. Model Land is also crazy, but for whatever reason, Tyra kind of screwed herself out of the ability to write about crazy stuff and have it be entertaining. It's crazy, but it's slow, and it's not all that fun. The big sin, Tyra over-explains everything. Every little piece of the world, the narrator shares the backstory. Why this is the way, why that is that way. Not only do I not need to know as much as she tells me, but the backstory of the world is uniformly a lot less interesting than the world itself as it exists in the story. And when you explain everything, it makes it feel like the world is less novel and weird. When I know the history of everything, and when that history is kind of trying to justify the existence of something more than it's trying to tell a good story, it really removes the magic from the world. Tyra's world in Model Land doesn't believe in itself enough to tell you that some things are a certain way, and they're that way because this is a world that's different from our own. Everything is in the context of being explained to us, the readers, and that method just normalizes everything or makes it dumb. Fury Road hits it right. It explains very little because you don't need to know a lot. You know the people are people, some apocalyptic shit happened, and now we're in a crappy situation. The rest plays out in the movie. We don't have to stop and get a backstory about every vehicle and every type of person. Nobody asks the bad guy, like, hey, what's up with that scary breathing mask thing? We don't have to hear what the different territories are and their history and who lives there. We keep fucking moving forward. And what's really weird about it, the page Tyra could have taken for her book, the one page that could have replaced a couple hundred, is that everything in Fury Road does have a backstory. 
All these characters have backstories created for the sake of making a real filled-in world. What Fury Road doesn't do is subject us to every backstory of everything within the actual movie narrative. The backstories are out there on the internet, and you're welcome to check them out. But you sure as hell don't need to. And they sure as hell didn't stop the movie every five minutes to explain something that doesn't matter. Why do they call it guzzoline instead of gasoline? Who gives a shit? I know what it is. It makes a sense in the context of the movie. Let's move on. This movie has a guy on bungee cords who shreds on a flamethrower guitar as he rides a giant war vehicle that's blasting through the desert. How is that improved by an explanation? I don't want to know who that guy is. I don't want to know how he learned to play guitar. I want to see him shredding on a giant war vehicle that's blasting through the desert. It's a narrative problem that kills the mood in Model Land. And when everything is explained to me in this, wow, isn't this strange world tone, then it brings me into that world in a way that feels disingenuous. Just show it to me. Believe me, if it's anything like Bungie Guitar Road Thrasher, I'll understand that it's weird. I'll get it. But instead of handling the uncanny that way, Modeland goes out of its way to explain why something weird and cool isn't that weird and by proxy isn't that cool either. It's weird how these two things are similar in my mind, Modeland and Fury Road. I think both are very crazy and strange. Both have characters that have ridiculous names like Rictus Erectus. In fact, a Modeland versus Fury Road name game would be pretty sweet. And difficult? Slit? Which one does that come from? Who even knows anymore? Yet, one of these entertainments is great, the other is dog shit. And the reasoning is pretty simple. Modeland feels the need to explain absolutely everything, and absolutely every explanation is absolutely stupid. Fury Road is crazy too, and it recognizes that not only is there no need to explain a guitar bungee flamethrower guy, but that in any explanation of that would just make it stupider and less fun. Which is maybe the key to the whole thing. Fun. Fury Road is crazy and fun. It doesn't lose sight of that fact, although a lot of the movie deals with death and apocalypse, you have fun watching the movie anyway. Model Land is not fun. It's very serious-minded or very oriented towards making a point, or about a hundred points, really, most of which seem to be quelling Tyra's private inner voice of self-doubt that must be a holdover from her younger days. That all adds up to making it really difficult to actually enjoy Model Land. And also, up to me telling you to... And also adds up to me telling you to see fucking Fury Road. It's a good movie. I don't see a lot of movies because I kind of tend to hate so many of them. And this is one of the few that never left me wanting anything else. Let me sum it all up here. Fury Road is crazy. The events are crazy. The people in it are crazy. But it's not stupid. It's purposeful and everyone knows what they're doing. Model Land is crazy, but the main character is very normal, and the side characters are crazy in very predictable fairy tale ways that don't offer me a whole lot to be interested in. And Model Land is stupid. The book, the story, it's very stupid. Another two weeks, another chapter of Model Land. This thing. It's taking me so long to get through each chapter. I pick it up, I mean to read like a hundred pages, and then I can't go through pages without saying, okay, that's just fucking stupid. And then I have to put the book down and eat an entire freshetta pizza by myself and use the diarrhea time to think about my life and what it's become. Anyway, this chapter sees the reappearance of one of my favorite characters, Wingtip. Yes, Wingtip is a character who is a magical black man bum. But at least, I'm pretty sure he's black, but if he's not, then he's a white magical black man. You all know about the magical black man, right? 
Originally called the Magical Negro, this is a character who has a lower social status of some kind, shows up, helps a white character, and has some kind of magical power and dispenses a whole lot of homespun wisdom. Your bagger's vance, if you will. I suppose the one way in which Wingtip falls short is that he's advising Tookie, who I assume is black because I assume that Tyra is not actually creating different races and stuff. This is always something that bothers me in fictions about other worlds. Like Gears of War. Your best friend is Dom, he's clearly Hispanic, and yet this game takes place on an Earth with, with countries that are not analogous to our own. Am I to understand that this totally other world developed a Europe and Central America of sorts, from which Hispanic people came, and those Hispanic people developed almost exactly parallel to those we know? How does this make any sense? I mean, sure, the development of certain objects works. The sombrero makes sense because you have to keep the near-equatorial sun off your body. But the language? The name Maria? How does that work? P.S. I spent some time googling whether Hispanic is a proper term. The answer is that no one has declared. However, Hispanic usually refers to people of Spanish origin, and because Dom's last name is Santiago, I assume that he's of Spanish descent. There's also the additional consideration of fuck off. Model Land is supposed to be this crazy-ass world, but it seems like black and white people are pretty much black and white people. Am I to understand this... This is an Earth of the far future, except some technology has gone backwards and isn't even up to its current level? There are no cell phones, but there are smizes and Model Lands. Where is Model Land time and space-wise? Anyway, wingtip. Wingtip is a homeless dude that gives Tookie some advice, and she calls him Wingtip because he wears Wingtip shoes. Remember, Tookie's a creative type. Wingtip had some very wise words for Tookie. Dream big, even you. Wow. Bravo. It's baffling that you're homeless with a wit like that. What size would you advise people to dream in general? Small, moderate, oh, big. Brilliant. I'm learning much of things from your wise words, Wingtip. That's Wingtip. I suspect we haven't seen the last of Wingtip. Hopefully we've seen the last of Tookie's parents, however, as the Day of Discovery Scout takes Tookie away to Model Land. Yes, the Scout scoops up Tookie in what I can only describe as a cross between Santa's bag and an enormous gossamer scrotum, Destination Model Land. Or at least Destination Model Land eventually, because first we have to stop and pick up some other girls. Which brings us to Boo Big Teak Nation. Seriously, stop reading this and just type that name. Everything in this book, the hardest shit to type. BBT Nation is a place where it appears the country is a giant store, like a huge mall. Like my dreams as a 14-year-old, a mall you could live in instead of just sleezing around for a few hours every weekend, playing Captain America and Avengers when you had enough quarters to maybe finish it, somewhere between 3 and $5. Oh, and some tossed-off dialogue says the babies of BBT Nation are raised on wombat milk, because why the hell not? Just spin a wheel that has animals on it. That's kind of milk that the babies will be raised on. Because it's a giant mall, so it only makes sense that wombat milk plays a part. Jesus fucking Christ. Here's where we meet Dylan. Dylan's notable features are a big ass and the sass to match, by which I mean a lot of it. My apologies to mousy people who also have big asses. Her other distinguishing feature is that she has an accent that goes in and out worse than Heather Graham's in O Pioneers. One minute, Dylan sounds like maybe a Southern Belle, the next a sassy aunt from a UPN sitcom, and then the next there appears to be no accent at all. 
Oh, and Din Dylan does have a catchphrase, which she uses twice in the first pages we see her. Crazy. Good one. That's right up there with Joey Lawrence's woe in terms of craft. Lots of characters come and go, but I'll never forget Dylan's crazy and the way she said it in her Southern Belle sassy, sassy aunt slash nun accent. Dylan is like Tookie in one significant way, which is that she seemingly does not give a fuck about Model Land. She's not actually parading around for the Day of Discovery, just stopping a fight between some other girls. I strongly suspect we're going to be subjected to a message of some kind here about what's really important being inside, or more accurately, that what's really important is inside, but it's also very helpful if what's it's inside is a curvaceous butt. Which ends this next section, thank fuck. It didn't really hit me before, but there's something fundamentally stupid about Model Land we haven't discussed. It seems like we're learning a lesson about inner, non-traditional beauty. There are many ways in which this could be discussed and elaborated upon, especially considering that we've got an entire fictional world. And the way we're learning about inner, non-traditional beauty in this book is through the lens of outer, traditional beauty. I guess I don't get it. I don't get why girls who don't aspire to model are going to learn the value of their inner beauty through the medium of modeling, an industry that's 100% about outer beauty. I don't understand the value of having a stuck-up, overall shitty industry accepting your looks as being something valuable. It's sort of this thing about how beauty comes in all shapes and sizes, which it totally does, and I don't know why we're looking to the fashion industry to validate that fact. The fashion industry brings us shit like this, Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. I have some fashion pictures. Or this, which I call First Orthodontic Appointment Where I Can See Your Wang Chic. Or this, accordion to Jim's pants. It's a guy with wearing <laughs> accordion pants. Now, when you look up a plus-size model, you see this. I mean, she's not a waif, but she's a pretty goddamn long way from chud status. Hell, she's not even John Goodman in chud. The point is, the fashion industry is based on insane, bizarre, and unrealistic beauty standards. And I'm kind of of the opinion that we let the crazies have it. Let those weirdos do their dumb shit, and those of us who spend less than $1,000 on a pair of jeans will find our own fashion icons, thanks. I mean, look at this fucker. Is this who I'm supposed to take advice from when it comes to looking good? Techno Dracula? And there's a picture of Karl Lagerfeld. <laughs> look, a fashion show is like a chili cook-off, but with farts. Actually, I bet fashion shows have farts too, so just kidding. Enter a chili cook-off, and there are plenty of... There's plenty of room for different taste, but in the end, there's a chili that's selected as being the best. And we pick it and move on, and it doesn't matter if the lady who brought Chili X is a good person inside. If her chili isn't great, it's not great, and she's also not a bad person. Sure, she could have spent more time on the name instead of calling it Chili X. That was pretty lazy. But when you're not first place in an unimportant ranking, who gives a shit? Let me try and more succinctly summarize what's going on in Model Land and how chili farts relate. Tookie is learning that she is beautiful too. Even though she doesn't conform to traditional beauty standards, which I guess are shared between the world of this book and our own. But the thing is, Tookie's actually objectively beautiful. So rather than conveying the message that beauty can look different or that inner beauty is important, what we're getting from this book is the message that hopefully you're beautiful and you just weren't really aware of it, which is not something I'm sure exists. I don't know how many super attractive people out there are unaware of their attractiveness. Yes, sometimes they don't feel attractive, but for the most part, I think they notice that others find them attractive. 
So I guess the secondary message for uggos out there is, sorry you're not hot. I mean, check and make sure you're not secretly hot, but you probably aren't. If you're wearing overalls and a ponytail and weird glasses, maybe a mean-spirited boy makes a bet with his friends as to whether he can take make you prom queen, and then he'll transform you as much as possible, and then when you go to the prom, you'll know whether or not you're hot based on whether someone dumps a gallon of pig's blood on you. And who knows, maybe it'll turn out you were hot all along and just needed to be convinced. Maybe you'll be whisked away to a far-off land in a gossamer ball sack, at which point you'll figure out just how hot you are. Chapter 11. You may have noticed this is Chapter 11, which is also like bankruptcy, which is not a coincidence as Model Land is bankrupting my soul. That's maybe taking it a bit far, but maybe not. Tangential memory. I remember as a kid when Marvel Comics filed Chapter 11. It's probably hard to believe now, what with all the filmographic success and all, but I swear it's true, Mighty Marvel was mighty broke. I was terrified. Was this the end of web Spidey's web swinging? Was clobbering time up? Was Black Widow going to trade in her leather bodysuit for sensible business attire and become, oh, I don't know, a social media expert? Luckily, it didn't happen. And we still have all our heroic friends and their commitments to various revealing outfits. Anyway, Model Land Chapter 11. All that happens in this entire chapter is that Tookie and two other girls are still being transported to Model Land inside of the Gossamer ball sack. They do pick up another girl who's basically a dick and also not traditionally attractive. She points out that none of them are all that hot, to which Dylan has a brilliant retort. Excuse-a-me? Gold star. Something did occur to me reading this part. For a book about modeling and beauty, this is probably one of the least sexy books of all time. Not that sexiness is something I always look for in a book. In fact, more often than not, it's just uncomfortable. But how do you know a book about beauty without... Or how do you do a book about beauty without having anything remotely sexy happen. I don't know, but Tyra does. She's cracked the code to a safe nobody wanted to see inside of. The only love in this book is so chaste it'd make Stephanie Meyer be all like, oh come on, at least throw a digit in a lady, handies are fine. Even my asinine moral high ground upbringing says so. I'm hopeful we'll get a sex scene because I can only imagine what that is like through the eyes of Tyra Banks. Through the eyes, I said. Let's leave it there. No need to be crude. Chapters 11, 12, and 13. At the beginning of this section, we've got Dylan in the ball sack, and I was so glad to get back to this because, well, I'll let Tyra take the wheel here. The pouch swept through the green portal again. After a few minutes, a vanilla-scented breeze tickled Tookie's nose. In seconds, the pouch began to fill, fill with white goo. And there you have it. Definitely a ball sack. Do I think Tyra was representing a sexual thing here, that the ascendancy to model land involves the loss of virginity, a baptism in semen? No. I wish that's what was that was what happened. But it turns out the ball sack isn't filling with cum, it's filling with candle wax. See, this ball sack teleports and end up ends up in weird spots, like inside a street light or coming out of an old man's ear or some shit. And in this case, we are inside a candle. Why? Because we're in the land of Candelabra. That name immediately made me regret restarting this book, by the way. Fucking Candelabra. Candelabra is a land where all of the economy, nay, all life revolves around candle production. I can't help but wonder if the dystopia in this book couldn't have been avoided by a little bit of diversification. 
I mean, a whole country devoted to making candles? We don't even need our disparate aunt, weird aunts doing this in their garages, let alone an entire country of it. But whatever, we pick up Shiraz, who thinks she's perfect, but she's four foot seven. I don't know conversions, but she's like 10 vertical fur stones or something in metric. Then we roll over to the land of Sanskalar, where everyone is albino. Tookie does say that she knows the people have albinism, but isn't sure whether it's proper to call someone an albino. Turns out this is a hotly debated topic amongst albinos. Some hate the word because basically it's been used as an insult. Others feel like it's fine. To paraphrase one albino forum poster, if you have diabetes, you're diabetic. If you have dyslexia, you're diabetic. If you have albinism, you're albino. If you have dyslexia, you're diabetic. I wonder if that was my misquote. Probably. <laughs> if you have anything, you're diabetic. Frankly, it doesn't matter, because Tyra is making up all this bullshit anyway, so she could make up a different form of albinism or a completely different thing or whatever, because all the rest of this shit is insane anyway. And if you choose to call your land sans color, give me a break. Let's get back to the story. And for the record, you can call me an asshole or person with assholeism, but other assholes might feel differently, so be aware. And hey, you could call me an asshole or someone with assholeism, but I prefer Pete. Hashtag not all assholes. Okay, get ready. Cue up some celebratory music. If you're stuck, I recommend looking up BBC Grandstand theme. You're welcome. We've arrived at the gates of Modeland. Yes, fucking finally. We immediately meet a tailor who has a hand for a face. This isn't explained much beyond Dylan's amazing one-liner. This thing gives new meaning to the phrase talk to the hand. Truly, one of the finer wits of our time. The fucked up part is that I'm not sure whether the hand face character was created specifically for this joke or if the joke was applied to the character. Because that's how this book is insane. You can't tell. Why are they meeting a tailor outside of Model Land? Who the fuck knows? Why does he have a hand face? Why does he choose to clap by head hand butting his regular hands instead of clapping normal style? In short, the fuck? Okay, then we find out that the scout who picked up Tookie in her magic nutsack is none other than the missing C-L. Yes, as a reminder, that's C-I tilde L. And yes, we're told how to pronounce this name, and the tilde has no effect. C-L. Good. Good thing that happened. I guess that shit's not getting much of use on the keyboard. Frankly, it beats that Beyonce accent bullshit. That's hard as hell to type. I've got a tilde, it's right here. I've got tildes all day long, so why not? Do I think Tyra just looked at the keyboard and said, hey, this thing? Yes. Yes, I do. CL is more than just a convenient place to shove a tilde. She's also all of the following. A scout, an intoxabella, a 777, and a slam poet. I don't know which of these things I hate more. On the one hand, the 777 means she's one of the seven selected models and a rare one who exhibits all seven potential model powers at once. I wanted to list these again here, but they're very stupid and unimportant. Nothing cool like opening a door to a pocket dimension of all lasers with your eyelids so it appears that lasers shoot it out of your eyes. Nothing cool like that. But the slam poet thing, that's just albino as hell. Ah shit, busted. Busted using albino as a slur. The slam poet thing is so dumb. Why in the fuck does she need to be a slam poet? Why does that matter at all? Reading about CL, it's like old Superman comics where he exhibits a new power every issue because it's like, well, he's super at everything, right? 
which is how Superman once reassembled a broken machine he saw briefly because of his super photographic memory. Or when Superman used his super broadcasting to turn his voice into radio waves. There was super kissing. And, regrettably, the power to create super midgets. Tiny supermen that shot out of Superman's hands. Because you know what would be a lot more useful than Superman? Tiny supermen with the same powers. Okay, last two important things. We are about to enter Model Land. Now there's some kind of statue face thing that verifies you're supposed to enter Model Land, and there's speculation in the book that CL is somehow sneaking her ball sack full of freaks and geeks past the face. This is not hinted at lightly, but bashed over the head of anyone dumb enough to read this, so be aware that something shady is happening. Zarpessa shows up, Tookie's nemesis, who was also broke and dug in the garbage and Tookie saw it one time. I just want to reiterate one more time that we're on page 149, and we are just now entering Model Land. Up to this point, it's been this huge question. Will Tookie make it? Ah, the tension. You could cut it with a knife. Look, can I put my editor hat on for a second? Say what I would have said to Tyra here. Tyra. First off, this shit is bananas. But I think it's the on-purpose kind of bananas, so keep going. One thing. Can we get to fucking Model Land already? Kurt Vonnegut once said that the way to write a story is to start as close to the end as possible. And many a good story has been written by breaking that rule, but I think like you've broken that rule, exhumed Vonnegut's corpse, and crammed a long ice pick up his skeleton urethra. Because goddamn, there's a lot of nothing that happens before we get to Model Land, which is where we want to go. It's like this. Pretend this book is a road trip we're taking together. I'm driving, you're the passenger. And it's like two years later and you're telling someone about this road trip. You don't need to start with, I woke up before Pete picked me up. I took a shit and I wiped 17 times. I call that a smearster. Then I got in the car and three hours later and this is where things get interesting. Okay, no, just start with the first thing happens. I don't need to know about the shit you took and what kind it was unless that has some bearing on the story later on. In this first 150 pages of Model Land, you're taking shits left and right and telling me about each one. And you're not wiping, Tyra. You're not wiping. You're making a mess and dragging these poo threads along behind you unresolved. This metaphor is getting all out of hand, so let me put it like this. You can probably cut the first 150 pages and be better off. A couple more chapters, why not? Let's get the plot out of the way first, because this won't take long. In this section, our heroes have entered Model Land. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. What the whole world has been waiting for. This is the moment where we enter the world of pure imagination, where all the hard work pays off. And we see a couple weird buildings. A bush seems to be a portal to other spots, and that's about the extent of it. Okay, the buildings are kind of strange. A cube building that stands on one of its corners. A building that's actually a boat which I'm pretty sure we have a name for already, and it's called a boat. Or a building. Either, really. It doesn't seem to be all that significant that one building is a boat and one is a cube. Just know that they aren't those shitty portable buildings you had in elementary school. Stupid buildings aside, there's this weird thing going on where Tookie is starting to wonder if Model Land isn't what it seems. Tookie wonders this after seeing an obstacle course where girls on their final year of Model Land training compete with rings of fire or some such shit. And it's like we, as readers, are supposed to be suspicious that Model Land is doing something shady, 
But this is after the guide openly admits that the Rings of Fireplace is where models compete in the final year. It's like Tookie thinks there's more going on than meets the eye, except also maybe it's exactly what meets the eye? I don't know, I can't even tell. The way this is written is just so god-awful that I can't tell whether Tyra is laying in a secret or telling the readers to keep their eyes open or if we're seeing the truth or what. This is impossible to parse. There is a brief moment in this section where we're trapped in a room that's made of zippers. I wish I could tell you more, but that's the extent of the description. I'll say this. Tyra respects her audience in their intelligence. She isn't hand-feeding me shit. I don't even know what this fucking place looks like. Model Land, the place that the book is named for. There's some weird buildings, a bush teleporter, and a zipper land. From there, go nuts. And this thing just gets lazier as the chapter wears on. Page 168. Description of the young men, who are sort of models, but not the stars. Oh, and they come from a place called Bestosterone. Quote, A group of young men marched in, doing a highly powerful staccato dance. Each was more handsome than the next. And on page 169, one page later, describing board members, sorry, board members, B-O-R-E-D, that's intentional, a character reminds us just how intentional that is. Quote, Tookie counted six members of the board, one stranger than the next. Oh, rad. So the description is, here's a pretty poorly defined quality, and each subsequent person exhibits that quality more than the last. This is all relative bullshit, but who cares? Model land. And if that's not lazy enough, then we get the same thing again on the next page. And what the fuck is a powerful staccato dance? Tap dancing? Some, some shit from Stomp? You made me wait forever for this shit, and now it's just blowing by. I had to read all about the land where they make candles and have a candle-based economy, and now we finally get to model land, and you're like, I don't know, who's got the time? They dance, there was fire, the end. Ah, there was, however, an interesting little tidbit about the board, provided by your friend and mine, Tyra. The board members. Here are the board members. Guru Applesauce. Man with a hand for a head. Two. An old man with moving tattoos all over his body that change shape and content. Three. A lizard with a yellow eye and a forked tongue who can change colors. Four. And a... Stunning figure that looked exactly like it was three-quarters man, one-quarter woman. He or she was muscular, yet thin, with blonde hair slicked back in a tight ballerina bun. I'll just point out that this fourth character elicits a stronger negative reaction from the crowd of girls than a lizard person, an old man who must be mostly naked if we can see he's covered with tattoos, and a man who has a hand for a face. I'm not going to get all social justice here. There's no need because I can talk about this from a storytelling angle. I just have a hard time believing that this parade of weirdos being ended by someone who's gender ambiguous is a big fucking deal. Seems like kind of a letdown, to be honest. That's like having a sideshow with the world's fattest man, the world's tiniest woman, the world's ugliest baby, and then a guy who has pretty long eyebrow hairs here and there. Because I've seen some people who are gender ambiguous, but I have never in my life seen someone with a hand for a head. Or a lizard man. Or a man with living tattoos who mounts a stage mostly naked, slaps one of his tattoos, and the words within the tattoo are altered. Oh, but this other person might have an abnormally large clitoris, so I guess call the papers. And seriously, what kind of description is that? One quarter woman? Believe me, with my thighs, I'm a chic disposable and a couple bottles of shave gel away from being one-quarter woman. Nay, one-quarter babe. There's one other thing here. 
At the top of page 168, we get a little piece that felt, to me, like stream of consciousness. What Tyra was fucking thinking when she wrote this. Tookie's new model and classmates have just expressed friendship. Quote, A rush of warmth settled over Tookie. They cared about her well-being. Maybe they were even her new friends. She let this moment sink in for a second. For the first time in her life, she actually used the word friend in the plural. She made a mental note to herself to start spelling friends with four S's, friends, in her T-mail jail. One S for each of the four friends she now had, Dylan, Shiraz, Piper, and of course, Lizzie. Reminder about T-mail jail, that's what Tookie calls her diary. I understand the desire to find a word other than diary, but come on, don't call it my fucking LLP money papers or something like that. I call it a diary and I move on. That section, though, that just felt like run a running thing in Tyra's head. Okay, I'll call them friends, but I'll do it like friends because there's four and each one gets an S. Why the S? Doesn't matter. Or I could dot the I with four vertical dots, maybe. Let me call Microsoft and see if that's possible. Friends? Jesus, let's hope she doesn't make any more friends. Maybe that's why this book is so long. Maybe she gets up to a couple hundred friends and we have to gut it out every time that word shows up. Fuck, I'm not even popular, and if I did that based on Facebook, I would have to write friend with a bunch of S's every time. My diary entries? Hey, LLP Money Papers. Well, I made one new friend on FB today. That means I've got 207 friends. Sometimes I wonder whether I should pare down my friends list, but it's not like you have to limit how many friends you can have online. And besides, the more the merrier. It's like that one episode of Friends where Chandler... Hell. This book has taken me to hell. November 20th, 2015 update. You know what's amazing about this book? Tyra is so prescient about doing all the things I dislike in books, it's uncanny. At the end of the last chapter, we're treated to a song. Yes, a song expressed in only text without any indication of tempo or melody or musical style. A fucking song. Songs and books are a pet peeve of mine since the old days in Lord of the Rings. God, that I hate those songs. It just doesn't make sense. Text is the worst medium of musical expression, if you ask me. Let's start at the top of the music medium hierarchy. 1. Recorded audio. 2. Live performance. Some would probably swap these two, and I get that. 3. Live performance is experienced by a deaf person. 4. Sheet music. A certain subset of people can certainly appreciate this and, quote, hear the music on the page. 5. The sound that just barely comes out of my headphones when I forget to turn off my iPod and hear it hours later, just barely, and I'm not even sure it's music at first. 6. The awful polka music played from an across-the-street neighbor's truck that rattles the windows in my apartment. 7. Songs played via farts. 8. Farts, just the regular kind. 9. Lyrics written out on a page. Seriously, with written lyrics in books, there's no indication of tone or tempo. It's just words, some of which rhyme, written down on the page. I tried so fucking hard to find the text to copy and paste, but here we go. Transcribed because I fucking love you. So here's the song. My dear model land is a heavenly queendom. Its walls rich with memories of yesteryear. Our laws antiquated but must be respected, or I'll discard you like moth-eaten cashmere. Listen to me now, my spanking new no-sees. You're infants, you're rascals, and oh so askew. You've entered a world that most would slay for, but amongst them all I have chosen you. 
Model Land is your new home. Welcome to this super dome. For your XX chromosomed, Model Land, Model Land is your new home. Regard your dear neighbor, the Bellaton you're near left. Ambassador to Model Land, and you are now too. She'll excite the world to buy new wares of design and splendor. Here's a list of Model Land's career menu. From footwear to freeze sprays, foundation face powders, to corsets and camisoles and culottes and trousers, moccasins and miniskirts, mesh tops and bronzers, sandals, suspenders, and sunblock with powers. You'll wear waistcoats, wedding dresses, wetsuits, and lingerie. Leotards and yellow belts, deodorant every day. Hosiery and houndstooth and rougey lips to chalets. Bandiers and bodices and LBDs at soirees. You'll exfoliate, emulsify, depilate, and moisturize. Sell glycerins, jojoba oils, fragrance, fragrances and fluorides, cocktail dresses, cardigans, concealers for tired eyes, and practice all your posing tricks from sunset till sunrise. Perform in petticoat-themed, much-attentioned fashion to lead expos. Safari wear, tuxedos, tunics, tops, all types of clothes. Kilts and cloaks and swinging coats and crocheted kimonos with audiences making bets on who will fall upon their nose. Okay, that's all. That's not the whole thing, but that's all I can stands. Seriously, like, that's half of the song. Friends don't make, let friends make fake songs in fiction. Chapters 16 and 17. This book is a clown car. Just when you think we've got enough characters with the kinds of crazy names Stan Lee would balk at, we get another dozen or so. Out of nowhere, it's just like the clown car at the circus where you're saying, surely there aren't any more people in that car, there's just no need. Then we get somebody to something from the land of ice and fog. Jerk off Jerktopolis from Annihilalia, the land where everything was annihilated by a swarm of ladybugs that were not just red, but dashing yellow, orange of fire, all the colors of the rainbow. Yes, this is made up shit, but this is also my audition to Ghostwrite Model Land 2 Electric Boogaloo. Tyra, I might not be enjoying Model Land, but damn it, who knows the material better? Who else is so dazzled by your made-up craziness that has nothing to do with anything? The girls have their lips waxed in this chapter. That's something that happens, and their lips are waxed with a dark black kind of wax, and, quote, the label on the wax jar said LP Wax, recycled from vinyl albums of yesteryear. But why? Vinyl? Music? None of this has anything to do with anything that's happened in this book, and it doesn't make sense, scientifically or thematically. Records are actually made of PVC, people. You would not want to melt a goddamn PVC pipe and stick it on your face. And this book doesn't have themes about melting down the past to pave the road to the future or some such horseshit. What is the message? What's going on? Where am I? It's what's so baffling about this book. You're humming along, and then there's something in there that you know won't ever come up again, for any reason, ever, and it makes no sense and sticks in your craw. It's like a Nicolas Cage movie where you just know he's going to do some weird shit like eat drinking red and yellow jelly beans out of a martini glass, because you know. He's a stuntman who turns into a spirit of vengeance. Seems like a thing he'd just really enjoy. Swear to God, this is a movie movie where Nicolas Cage pees fire and eats bullets and then shoots them out of his face. But it's this jelly bean nonsense that will haunt my life forever. As for plot in these chapters, we have the now-entered THBC Thigh High Boot Camp, 
which, don't be mistaken by the name, does not involve boots of any kind, any sort of thigh-high anything, and is less a boot camp, more a haunted house that the ladies of Monoland have to sit through. But please just ignore the fact that the name doesn't describe anything that's happening and mostly just rhymes. So the ladies all sit in chairs, and then four tests are administered by Ganero Nars, the man who is three-quarter man, one-quarter woman, and has Z's to spare. And at any point, the Model Land candidates can run through a door marked home and be taken away from THBC and Model Land forever. Test the first, measurements. The ladies are measured. That's pretty much it. Humiliating, I know. I got measured for a suit once. It didn't fit, and an elderly woman spent quite a bit of time sliding her hands around my groin and asking me to which side I dress. This is the polite way of asking which pant leg your penis points down. She asked more than once, like I wasn't sure. Believe me, I know. I hadn't really thought about it much before that day, but when asked, I knew right away which way my penis had been pointing for the last decade. Test the second, ogres. The ladies are all made up by robots or something that all use the same tubes and powders and shit on different girls, and they look beautiful, and then they start to transform into hideous ogres. It's kind of crazy, bursting eyeballs and shit. A bunch of girls run through the home door and leave, but Tookie has a feeling that this is all a trick. She's the only one who suspects this, even though from my accounting, everything that's happened so far in the book is a trick. Which it is, and the lesson we learn here is that it's a bad idea to share makeup. Doi. This introduces a segment I'd like to call Pete's Rules for Surviving Model Land. Rule 1. Yes, it's a trick. If you suspect it's a trick, it's definitely a trick. If you don't suspect something is a trick, it's definitely also a trick. Everything is a fucking trick. From the name of the thigh-high boot camp to the portals disguised as bushes somehow, it's all a trick. Okay, back to the tests. Test the third, deadly accessories. Oh, we get lovely jewelry, purses, hobo bags. By the way, world of fashion, I don't know what you think a hobo bag is, but I'm telling you right now, a hobo bag is a Walgreens white plastic bag with a receipt in it for pyramid cigarettes. The accessories turn on their wares, strangling them and such, and the lesson we learn here is that it's wrong to accessorize with knockoffs. Some designer out there worked really hard to make that ugly-ass purse, and in about a very confused politics, we also learn that knockoffs are made in Asian sweatshops, and if we stopped wearing knockoffs, then the lives of those sweatshoppers would be perfect. And finally, Tess the Fourth gets stabbed in the head by a needle from a giant sewing machine. I shit you not. The other tests all caused candidates to go running for the home door, which means they leave Model Land forever. But Toki and her friends have held on, and they face the last test, which is described by Tyra as a giant sewing machine moving towards them slowly, and one at a time, the machine stabs the girls in the head and they sort of disappear. Is this the end of Toki de la Creme? Or is it Model Land? And when in Model Land, should we always follow Pete's rules for surviving Model Land, specifically rule one, it's a trick. Tookie gets stabbed in the head, but she's fine. And then she's just her face in a floating orb. And her friends are all faces in floating orbs. And then the orbs all float towards a door that says home. Oh shit, Tookie tries to backpedal her orb, but it floats through the door. And that's the cliffhanger. Has Tookie left Model Land forever? For some reason, Tyra has gotten real R.L. Stein in the last few chapters, by which I mean cliffhanger chapter endings that aren't cliffhangers. Chapter 16 ending. Will Tookie and her buddies be stuck as ogres forever? Chapter 17 beginning. No, for almost like one sentence though. 
Chapter 17 ending. Have Tuki and her comrades flown home on accident? Chapter 18 beginning. No, it's not really explained, but by this point they were faces floating in orbs and they'd just been stabbed in the head with a giant needle, so how much explanation is required? And we've almost crested 200 pages, people. The midpoint is in sight. And there you have it. That's going to be our uh, Pete's exhaustive review of modeling portion for today. Looking like maybe this will be a total of four or five episodes. So uh, hopefully you're digging it. It's it's kind of fun to go back through and remember the, what this book was like. Even though reading it wasn't fun, but I guess uh, rereading, rereading of it is kind of fun. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Asking the questions that nobody could. Like where are the bone dogs and are they in harmony? Do-do-do-do, you're a helpful snowman.